0: Well, now to some rich thinking on how we Australians might enjoy this neighbourhood of ours in the near future, Southeast Asia, how we conduct ourselves as a nation publicly in the big set piece events, privately in all sorts of negotiations. Well no doubt by being ourselves, as the Prime Minister has been saying of late, but maybe too by varying our tone, by re-examining some of our prized cultural habits. Would we compromise ourselves by doing so? Let me read you a pretty bracing description from a former senior Singaporean foreign affairs bureaucrat describing Southeast Asian diplomacy's approach that it's, quote, instinctively promiscuous, not monogamous, seeking to hedge, balance and bandwagon simultaneously, which is tricky, to say the least. Is it advisable in this era of great power rivalry well this is one of several arguments advanced in a new edition of the journal australian and foreign affairs titled our unstable neighborhood the contest for southeast asia and two of the contributors alan gingell and kishore mabubani join me now alan gingell's had a long career in and around australian foreign affairs as has kishore from his vantage point in singapore welcome to you both Good morning. Hi, Hi, Geraldine. Now, you offer, Keyshaw two distinct choices for Australia's strategic direction in our region. And you like telling us Australians how we should think about these things. We can either be the bridge between the east and west or the tip of the spear. That's how you start your piece. Now, what are you getting at?
1: Well, the point I'm getting at is that the world has changed fundamentally. And I think Australia basically has enjoyed, I would say, relatively speaking, almost 200 years of peace and prosperity in a period of Western domination of world history, where the Asian countries were mostly declining. Now we're hitting a major turning point in human history, where in a sense, Western power is receding, especially from East Asia. At the Asian centuries beginning. So it's a completely new geopolitical environment for Australia. It just cannot just tinker with its policy. It's got to make a fundamental policy decision on where it goes to in the 21st Asian century. And my suggestion to Australia is that it can enhance its own security and, frankly, help its neighbors by being a helpful bridge between especially Southeast Asia and the West. And by so doing, you will gain a lot of goodwill in Southeast Asia and also enhance its long-term security.
0: And would that be instead of or together with and how, if that's the case, our great and powerful friend, our alliance with the ANSYS alliance with the US?
1: No, I think it'd be very important for Australia to retain its close relationship with the United States because the fact that Australia is highly trusted in Washington, D.C. is a major asset And if he could use that trust to help explain to uh, Washington, D.C., why the ASEAN countries don't want to take sides between United States and China, why they want to have good relations with both. Because, as you know, many, uh, unfortunately, silly and ill-informed people in Washington, D.C. are still pushing ASEAN countries and saying, hey, come on, guys, you know, China is the bad guy. You better choose us. We are the good guys. And that's all political naivete. Uh, needs to be corrected. And I think Australia can do the correction because Australia is trusted. How do you hear this, Alan Gingell,
0: with a great sort of uh, knowledge of Australian diplomacy and approach to foreign policy?
2: Well, Keshaw, as, uh, as so often, has some good advice for Australia, but I don't myself think that the answer is for Australians to think of ourselves as a bridge between East and uh, and West. My late friend Ashton Calvert, former Secretary of DFAT, used to say that the trouble with bridges is that people walk all over them. And uh, the, <laughs> I, so I, I prefer for Australia to think not in this way as a choice between being a bridge and a spear, but as a great continent in its own right with our own lines of economic, social and security interests in the rest of the world, and to position ourselves in that way. And in that way, I think we do have to come to terms with uh, Southeast Asia in particular in a way that we've sort of lost sight of in the past 20 or so years as our focus was diverted first to the Middle East and then to all China, all the time. So we, we we do need to do that. But I think at the same time, we're going to be a real asset for the countries of uh, Southeast Asia in the sort of complex and uh, turbulent times that lie ahead simply because of our stability, because of our resource base and because of the way in which, at our best, we do think... Uh, about
0: Southeast Asia and uh, and the region around us. Well, that quote that I used from a man called Bilahari Kasikan, who used to work at the Singapore Ministry for Foreign Affairs, with that pretty strong words, you know, that they have a policy he thinks it's promiscuous rather than monogamous because it maximises room for manoeuvre and the exercise of agency. Now, at the moment, Alan, that would be very hard to sell to the Australian people, wouldn't it? At the moment, that type of approach. Yes,
2: and it's not going to happen, I don't think. I I'm, mean, I'm one thing we know, including from the latest uh, Lowy poll on Australian views of the world, is that the alliance with the United States is deeply grounded in popular support in Australia. So no Australian government is going to abandon uh, that and that's why we have to shape a policy in a way that enables us not to be promiscuous but to deal effectively with both the great powers while making it clear that we're a, an ally of one.
0: Yeah, but you see, uh, Keshaw, you give a range of quite specific Examples of how you think it is possible in effect to walk and chew gum and and particularly the Vietnam story is very interesting. Why does Vietnam, in your opinion, offer Australia so much to think about?
1: Yes well uh, let me let me say at the very outset that I agree with Alan that uh, as I said earlier, that Australia should preserve its special relationship with the United States of America, but I have also known over the years. Australian diplomats and thinkers and they're hard-headed realists. And I think it's important for Australia to consider the possibility that Donald Trump may come back again and say to its allies, go to hell, this is America first, you go do what you want to do, I'm taking care of America. So for for Australia to sort of place all its bets As they say, on only one chip on the table and say the rest don't matter is, I think, would be strategically very dangerous and therefore it'd be wise for. Uh, Australia to hedge its bets uh, also. And here, this is where I suggest that Vietnam offers the best kind of model for Australia. Because Vietnam has been living with a strong China for 2,000 years. And it's important to remember that Vietnam was actually occupied by China for 1,000 years. So they understand the Chinese very well. And the Vietnamese have a very wise saying that to become a leader of Vietnam... You must be able to stand up to China, and you must also be able to get along with China. And if you can't do both, you cannot be a leader of uh, Vietnam. And I would say the same kind of advice might be useful for all the Southeast Asian states and also Australia, because China is going to emerge as the number one economic power in the world. This is almost a certainty And we are going to enter a world in which the United States will become the number two economic power. And this is something that is, of course, inconceivable to many policymakers and thinkers in Canberra. So they keep thinking about the world as though the world of the past 200 years of Western domination and certainly more recent American domination will continue. Without thinking of the possibility that indeed you might have a situation which is quite realistic, where the United States might actually retreat to its own shores, leave us all stranded, and then we've got to make our own adjustments after that. So let's prepare for a different world and engage in a world where we both stand up with China and get along with China. Um,
0: Alan, one of the uh, suggestions that a couple of writers make in this very interesting edition is just the tone, the tone that we strike, which is what I've been talking about, and that the ASEAN way is low-key, elusive, indirect. And it's not Australia's way, but Keyshaw says, and a couple of the others say, why couldn't we learn versions of that that don't compromise ourselves? Now, is that doable?
2: I think it's doable, (laughs) Geraldine, and I don't know why we don't uh, learn it. I really do think that one of the problems in Australia's relationship with China over the past uh, three years or so has been precisely that. I think we could have had a foreign policy which had exactly the same policies on issues like 5G and uh, foreign interference and so on without... The collateral damage, and the collateral damage has come mostly because we've uh, our uh, leaders have been unable to articulate their positions uh, without um, overstating and shrieking and missing out on some of that elusive and uh, and low-key uh, ASEAN language. That doesn't mean that you're backing away from your own fundamental
0: principles. Does it look like cowtowing? That's
2: the... yeah. Well, I'm. You know, we all remember. I think Gary. Evans' famous statement that the Australian media has only uh, one story uh, or two stories about Australia and Asia, it's either row or kowtow. <laughs> so yeah, you can bet that it would have been uh, uh, seen that way, but it oughtn't to be beyond the wit of sophisticated political leaders and diplomats to work out how to, uh, how to articulate that. Uh, Keishel goes into that, I think, very well in his, uh, in his own essay in this, uh, in this magazine.
1: Can I add one word? I think kowtow is a very emotive word. But actually, if you just change the word to respect, treat Asian countries with respect, that makes a whole big difference. I mean, one of the striking lines in the essay by Alan Gingell, which I thought was a very important line, he said that in the 1990s, Australian ministers used to go to Washington, D.C. and remind Washington, D.C. that Australia's GNP was larger than that of the 10 ASEAN countries combined. I mean, and that, frankly, the fact that they did that showed, to some extent, a certain degree of condescension towards Southeast Asia. These countries are not really important, Yeah, but to be fair, that's
0: part of an understanding of foreign policy, isn't it, that economic size does determine
1: the... Yes, but that's precisely my point. Now that ASEAN's GNP is three times the size of Australia and will probably become five or six times the size of Australia. So I think... ASEAN can help to enhance the security of Australia, but you, we need to develop a respectful relationship.
0: Well, is that now happening? We have had, uh, I'll ask you and then I'll ask Alan, but I just wonder, is somebody from the region with, say, someone like Penny Wong coming and speaking?
1: Well, as you know, Penny Wong has just come in. The Morrison government, frankly, uh, raised a lot of eyebrows in Southeast Asia, frankly. And and I think you should also do privately, internally uh, not publicly, an assessment of how the attitudes of the Morrison government towards Southeast Asia alienated many Southeast Asians. I think it's important to develop a deep understanding of that. I have no doubt that Penny Wong will do a much better job and I have a lot of confidence in Penny. Alan, can
0: you see a substantive change in the uh, with the, the new government?
2: I I think we are seeing that uh, already, just going back to those words that Keishaw was using about uh, respectful. I I think if if there are two words which pop up regularly in the statements of... uh, Southeast Asia and in the South Pacific from Albanese and Wong and the others. It's listening and respectfully. So I think that message has got uh, through. And in her speech in Singapore at the International Institute of Strategic Studies, the foreign minister made the Uh, important statement. I think that ASEAN centrality means we will always think about our security in the context of your security. So I think, yes, this new government has made it clear that it it intends to play things uh, differently in the region.
0: I wonder if we could talk about this community of 12 in terms of specifics, because I do think sometimes people say, well, all of this is terribly sort of high-flown and abstract. How how might it actually translate on the ground? And I think, Keyshaw, you re-look at this interesting idea of a community of 12, the 10 ASEAN states plus Australia and New Zealand that was floated earlier, I think, by Kevin Rudd, was it not? Am I right? And then it lapsed. Now, you think this is a possible structural way forward?
1: Yeah, actually, it was first promoted when I was Permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Singapore. And I did some negotiations with Michael Costello, who was then my counterpart in Canberra. And this was followed, of, as you know, by a visit to Australia by our then Prime Minister, Go Chok Tong, and he and Paul Keating uh, agreed on a strategic partnership within Australia and Singapore and also uh, spoke about the community of 12. Now it's very, see the one important thing for Australia in a sense to try and consider is that because Australia is largely a western society and has got used to dealing in a sense in western forms with other countries, it looks at it in a very legalistic manner, whatever new arrangement might come. But many Asian countries believe that the legal form and structure doesn't matter. What matters is the spirit in which you are conducting these things. So ASEAN, as you know, is itself a very loose association of the 10 ASEAN countries in Australia and New Zealand, where you essentially build what I call a community of trust in each other, And then you're able to work with each other without necessarily signing any kind of very uh, strict legal agreements. And in many ways, by the way, in substantive terms... The cooperation between Australia and the ASEAN countries has gone up. And I think Alan documents this in his essays. He gives many examples in his essay.
0: It can mean, of course, that you end up saying nothing about substantive things, doesn't it, a sort of attitudes to Myanmar? I mean, there's a whole discussion about ASEAN sort of just basically allowing each other to to go their different ways without ever uh, ever trying to persuade people about a different things that upset you. I mean, again, I just don't know whether the Australian people are ready for that,
1: Keyshaw. Well, I'm glad you said that because I, I, I know I shouldn't be saying this, but I'll say it anyway. I think the Australian people need to be educated about the environment that they live in. And I think really, as Alan Gingell said in his essay, it's shocking that the number of people who who are learning Bahasa Indonesia in Australia has actually gone down over the years. I mean, that's very shocking, and I think Australians have to make a big effort to understand the neighbourhood. That they're in, and certainly they should know more about Indonesia than they do about the United Kingdom. Mm. That's a reality that you have to deal with because the Indonesia is right next door to you, and United Kingdom will drift further and further away from you, <laughs> even though you sing "God Save the Queen." Has to love Easter baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: yes, um, Alan. Final word to you, please. Uh, look, I agree
2: completely with the idea that trust is what is required to be built in this relationship. I agree about uh, Indonesian. Uh, and other Asian languages here. it's a dreadful situation we we face now. But I don't uh, I certainly don't agree, I, I think, uh, with the idea that Australia should join ASEAN. One of the interesting things for me about writing this uh, essay was that I began thinking that that would be a good idea, and I ended it by realising that ASEAN is actually so important to Australia in its role in holding together the countries of Southeast Asia, of preventing splits and divisions between them, that we need to do everything to help make ASEAN Mm -hmm. sustainable over the long term. And regrettably, I don't think that our participation in it would help that aim. So I agree, we need to find lots of other ways of building trust, but not that one.
0: Look, gentlemen, thank you. (laughs) It's a very interesting discussion with much more to come. Alan Gingell and Kishore Mabubani, thank you very much. Thanks, thank you. Thank
1: you very much.
0: And Alan is Honorary Professor at the ANU College of Asia in the Pacific. Kishore Mabubani, former, uh, from, uh, former Singaporean acad- academic and diplomat. And their writing, along with others, is in the latest edition of Australian Foreign Affairs magazine. Well, up next, a special memoir of Australian Chinese friendship.